my goodness gracious scorekeepers we're back how exciting <laughs> it's another episode of your favorite podcast the score minnesota's minnesota operas minnesota's operas no minnesota operas uh, <laughs> where do you work <laughs> at minnesota's opera <laughs> Um, but this is the podcast where we talk about opera and theater and pop culture and all that fun stuff um, from our perspective as three Black opera administrators. As always, I am Rocky Jones, the EDI director here at Minnesota Opera, and I am joined by the wonderful, talented, amazing Paige Reynolds. Hello, Paige. How are you? Hi there. <laughs> and of course, our Vice President of Impact, the incredible, wonderful, spectacular Mr. Lee Bynum. Hello, Lee. Hello. Do you know my favorite pronunciation of spectacular is spectacular. Thank oh. you, Titus Burgess. <laughs> okay. Spectacular. Spectacular, spectacular. <laughs> On the day that is not today, I will tell you the story about how I met Titus and the oh, really? immediate dislike to me that he took. But that's oh, a story no. for another day. Oh, I'm sure I deserved it. I I have no doubt. Ooh, that reminds me. I should tell you my oh. Anna Paquin story if I haven't already. Because <laughs> <laughs> she does not like me at all. <laughs> Quite deservedly so. Uh, <laughs> but we have an amazing show today. Incredible, incredible show. Probably the most legendary show we've done to date because this is the first time I think we have had like a legit legend on our show. Mm. Superstar. I am so excited. <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to lie. I'm a little nervous. I know <laughs> diabetes roast. We're not supposed to, <laughs> we're not supposed to admit to having anxiety or nerves, but I'm a little nervous y'all. Cause today we have the incredible legendary mezzo soprano world famous Denise Graves on the show today. <laughs> rounding out our our Carmen trifecta of shows. She's in town. She is directing our new production of Carmen. And y'all, I'm I'm speechless. <laughs> I don't even know what to say. <laughs> Can't wait to tell my mama. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. <laughs> so I have this soapbox that I always get on about how the kids nowadays will call anything or anybody legendary or iconic, right? And the, the reason it drives me crazy is for something to be legendary or iconic really also means that there's something singular about it. Otherwise, if everything is legendary or iconic, nothing is, right? And somebody will come out and it's like, oh yes, that blue coat, that's legendary. It's not. It's, it's a blue coat. It might be a great blue coat, but it's not really the stuff of legend. Denise Graves, however, is is legendary. She actually is an icon. Fits the bill in every way. As an historian, I can put an official stamp on that. So I am super, super excited that we have the person who has literally played the role of Carmen more than anybody else in the history of Carmen here with us today to talk about Carmen. Like that's that actually is iconic. I mean, that's kind of wild. I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> that's kind of the definition. Um. 
And a big part of the reason why I probably all three of us are here right now in these positions that we're in. Absolutely. It was learning about singers that her that even made me feel comfortable entering any opera, Mm -hmm. opera Mm -hmm. space. Um, Yeah, like (laughs) she gives so many of us. I I know I'm not the only one. She's probably given many of us permission to to be here and take up space. So, oh my gosh, I'm so excited. (laughs) I was going to make an air horn noise and I'm like, that's not enough. I need a real air horn. (laughs) (laughs) I'll try and find one and maybe put, and maybe drop something in for you. (laughs) Good idea. Sound effects, yes. (laughs) Okay, in three, two, one. Ooh. <laughs> wow. Y'all were supposed to play along. Fancy. <laughs> we just up the production value. There you go. <laughs> they were over there with the cannon. <laughs> but having said that, that uh, Miss Graves is going to be on the show with us um, in a few minutes. I know you all probably want us to get right to that, but we do have just a quick little piece of news, a little piece of housekeeping um, before we get to that. So Lee, do you want to uh, yes. let everybody know? I'll say a thing or two. Our beloved director of our creative development programs, which are really focused on education across the different age groups. Pablo Sequeiros, who's been a guest on the show before, is moving on to the next stage of his career. We want to send him on his way with all kinds of affection and admiration and enthusiastic encouragements of good luck and encourage any of you who are out there who enjoy arts education to consider coming to work with us. Um, We have posted the job on our company's website, but it's also in a couple of other places that are fairly easy to find if you know how to use the Google machine. But we would love you to come and work with us as we continue to promote educational programming that is rooted in our values of equity, diversity, inclusion, and access, and focus very much on social emotional learning, targeting people of all backgrounds, but frequently people of the global majority and really approaching arts education from that standpoint. So if that's you, come and work with us. If that is a friend of yours, tell them to come work with us. And if you just want to drop us a note to say hi and appreciate stuff that we're doing, we'll take that too. (laughs) Absolutely. And and just want to say, we love you, Pablo, and we're going to miss you so much. And you better come back and visit. (laughs) i'm gonna be mad and leave Um, us five stars yes and leave us five stars (laughs) good god (laughs) but i also do want to mention that we are still also we have a position open um for the edi coordinator position in our department so if you want to come and you want to uh actually help us with this very program that you are listening to <laughs> right now, you know, we are at a place where we need um, some help with logistics and scheduling and all that stuff. And also just, you know, helping us think through the EDI curriculum mm-hmm. um, at Minnesota Opera and helping Lee and I with duties as assigned <laughs> um, <laughs> administrative things and, and the like. Um, 
So please, if you are interested in that, or you know somebody who might be interested in that, um, that is also at mnopera.org slash jobs, I believe that, that is sounds, the right? URL. Um, but we'll, whatever it is, I'll put it in the show notes and you can find it there. Um, and you yeah. don't have to have EDI experience for no. that particular role. You just have to believe that it is a thing worth investing in. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we are willing to train and teach and provide professional development opportunities. But yes, you have to um, not be racist. That would be great. (laughs) (laughs) That would be awesome. All right. Well, with all of that said, no further ado, it is time. Everybody sit up straight, straighten your, your, your ties, your, your, (laughs) your hoodie strings. I don't know, whatever, (laughs) because it is time for a legend to enter the building. And when we return, we will be joined by the incomparable Miss Denise Graves. We will be right back. Woohoo! Welcome back, score keepers. We have such a treat for you today. <laughs> such a treat. I am excited. I am honored and humbled to introduce the illustrious, iconic uh, Miss Denise Graves. I am introducing someone who uh, USA Today calls, and we agree, an operatic superstar of the 21st century. She is particularly well known to operatic audiences for portrayals and title roles in Carmen and Samson and Delilah. These signature roles have brought her to Metropolitan Opera, Royal Opera House, Opera Nationale de Paris, Washington National Opera, all over the world, truly. Uh, And some of her Minnesota opera appearances also include Carmen, also the world premieres of Doubt at Minnesota Opera, a role debut 
was Erda and Wagner's Das Rheingold. She has performed with the finest symphony orchestras and conductors worldwide. Her repertoire ranges from German, French, and English classical to popular Broadway musicals, to jazz, to spirituals. You've probably seen her on TV as well. Yes, she has appeared regularly on radio and television. You may have seen her on Sesame Street, on Larry King Live. <laughs> there is an Emmy-winning profile about her from CBS's 60 Minutes, honey. Like, she is everywhere. I also want to highlight that in 2001, she gave a series of beautiful appearances in response to the tragic events of September 11th. And she was invited by President Bush to participate in the national prayer service at Washington's National Cathedral. And at this event was televised worldwide and was followed by her appearance on the Oprah Winfrey show in a live musical program of healing through gospel music. And of course, with all this, you know she is also a prolific recording artist. I especially wanna shout out her project Church uh, that she developed, uh, <laughs> yes, with African-American divas from all across music, like our favorites, uh, Dionne Warwick and Vogue, Patti LaBelle. Mm. Maya Angelou was on that album as well. Mm. Uh, and of course, she's a native of Washington, D.C. Shout out to D.C. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Where she attended Duke Ellington School of the Performing Arts. I know it well. Shout out to Duke Ellington. And she continued her education at Oberlin. College Conservatory of Music and New England Conservatory. Uh, she has many, many awards, including a Marian Anderson Award presented to her by Miss Anderson herself. Yes. Uh, <laughs> now she is dedicated to also bringing up the next generation of singers as well. And she's joined faculty of Peabody Conservatory of Music in Baltimore recently. And now we are welcoming her here to Minnesota Opera to direct Carmen. Welcome. Welcome. Oh my goodness. What an introduction that was. I don't think I've ever had anything so beautifully laid out. My goodness. Thank you so much. I'm going to have to request that you go everywhere that I go to (laughs) be up like that. My goodness. That was quite a range. I would love to. (laughs) Thank thank you, Miss Page. Thank you, Rocky and Lee. Thank you for having me here. Of course. It's absolutely our pleasure. Maybe we can just start with like how how are you feeling with the with Carmen about to Uh, open soon? What has it been like? How are you feeling right now with you know being at the helm of this of this ship? (laughs) I'm so first of all, I am in my cup runneth over. I am really bursting with gratitude and appreciation to Minnesota Opera specifically to um, Brian Taylor, who I think dreamed up this idea, um, Karen Quisenberry and Joseph Lee, they, they've been amazing and have offered me the opportunity of a lifetime. And so uh, every day, every day, it doesn't go unnoticed in my mind and in my heart, because I'm just so grateful to, be, to have the great privilege to be able to do this. It's going beautifully. It's going so well. I th- we've assembled a group of young artists who care who really want to make a big difference. They want this to be a beautiful production. They want it to be received well. It's like we're, we, we've all joined forces together to bring our best to this moment. So, and, and it's really happening. And I, and, I, and, I, and I also have to mention that I've got Eric Sean Fogel at my side, 
who's the associate director and the choreographer, and much more than that. I mean, he and I were meeting in New York every other Sunday to just talk through scene by scene by scene by scene. And he's got so much energy and he's in there uh, with me and, you know, uh, directing the traffic because we've got 70 people on the stage, you know. Mm. Wow. So it's a lot wow. of it coming in and out, plus children, you know, um, and so there's a lot to manage. And, and Carmen itself, you know, is, is real, real, well, some consider it not grand opera. I was about to say grand opera. And, and, and the reason, the distinction would be that there is speaking in it. But sometimes it's done with what's called the um, recitatives, and that's like spoken singing. But we're doing it, we're, cho we're choosing to do it with the dialogue. So that would be the distinction that would keep it from being grand opera. Grand opera means that everything is sung. Um, but it, it's turned as grand opera goes, it's as grand as it gets. It's, it's four acts of a mammoth uh, undertaking of, uh, you know, uh, singers and children and chorus and orchestra and all dancers and so many involved to, to bring about the telling of this incredible story. Uh, four acts of just one fantastic tune after the next. This opera, which has sort of won this worldwide approval, uh, you know, it's been a part of our lives for all of our lives. We just don't realize it that, you know, we've heard it in the Bad News Bears, you know, we've heard it in, <laughs> we've heard it in movies and we've, we've seen it in commercials and, you know, we've seen it uh, in video games and we've heard the music throughout our, our lives. And so it has infiltrated our, our, our lives. And um, again, just one of those operas that people really love, the story that, that's really real and true and relevant even today in 2022. So, it is a joy and, um, you know, a daunting undertaking to go about the retelling of this story um, in, a, in a really new, fresh and original way. So I'm delighted. I'm, I'm delighted. It's going very, very well. Everybody's wonderful. And they're working with me to, you know, there are some people in the, uh, the, the, uh, ensemble who've said to me, don't worry, I'm not going to let you down. I'm not going to let you down. And, <laughs> and I'm always so touched by that level of sincerity of them wanting this to be a great moment for me too. So what, what can I say? It's a gift from God is what it is. You know, this is an absolute divine gift. I would say that throughout my career, I've, I've performed Carmen more than most people who've ever sung the role. And, um, it's the role that I've sung the most throughout my career. And throughout my career, there was always a great, great sorrow I had with the fact that I've done hundreds of performances of it and I've not done a recording of it. There, there were projects in the work, but not a formal recording. I mean, you can find YouTube clips of me doing the whole opera and that sort of thing, but there was never a formal recording. And my whole life, my whole career, I just, I've had that sorrow thinking, unless you were in the opera house, you know, you missed it. You missed it and there's no recording. And, and, and this is what I've given so much of my artistic life to. And I felt like this is an incredible gift that came to me to sort of ease that little hurt that's been sort of, sort of at the center of my, you know, professional being for such a long time. So I'm just so grateful to God 
And I'm just so grateful to be able to have this opportunity to, to tell this story and to have this production in existence that says, um, this is a Denise Grace production, which I can't even believe I just said. Yes. <laughs> yes. It's a beautiful thing, truly, truly. And it's so funny. I was sitting, I was at Easter with my in-laws and they were all like, oh, which one is, which opera is Carmen? And I was like, da 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 There we go. They were all like, oh, that one, that one. Oh, I know that. Right, right. <laughs> but given that you have sung Carmen so many times and now you're in this new position as stage director, can you give us a little insight into the production and sort of how you are choosing to approach the material? So one of the things I looked at is what over 35 years of portraying this woman, what worked for me and what didn't work for me. Um, and what I sort of went into with a lot of energy and what I felt embarrassed by. And so for me, it's really coming from the, through the, the, the perspective of Carmen's point of view for who she is. If, if we look at the woman, that is the essence of who she is, the undecorated one, the, you know, not the facade, not the stereotypic one, but who is this woman? Who is she really when nobody's looking? Who is she when, when she first wakes up in the morning and there's no hair and makeup done? Like who, who is she? And so it's really coming from the perspective. Well, for, the first thing that I did was go to the literary source because that was really important to me. And there were some questions that I wanted to answer for the audience. Um, those questions that you may have when you leave the theater. Well, why did this happen? And when did that happen? And why did that happen like that? So one of the things that I wanted to do were, was to answer some questions, but I went right to um, everything, everything, everything that we do is story-based. So that's what I wanna say. With the exception of Micaela and Escamillo, which are two principal roles, they were not part of the original story. They were created um, as foils for Carmen and Don Jose, but they weren't part of the original novella of, of the novel that this work comes from. So I went there first and I started looking at who she was. And so it's taken from the perspective of the Roma, from the Roma culture and the traveling culture and what that community is like and why she is even in that community, an emancipated woman and uh, someone who is a, is a bit of an outlier, who's someone who is a bit of a rebel, even inside of her own community. She certainly is, in, larger society, but even within her community, she is this very liberated woman who poses a great threat and danger because she pushes out there who she chooses to be. And she's unapologetically who she is. So she doesn't conform to any sort of social norms. And that is always threatening because if you have people who want to imitate her or who want to, you know, be like she is. And that shows the younger generation something new and something else. And so she, she, she is very, very, um, she's loud and proud, you know, she's bold and she's who she is. And I love that about her. In fact, 
you know, I've always said that if I wrote a book someday, and maybe I'll do that someday, is that I would talk about how Carmen made me the woman that I am. I, I don't think that it was by any mistake that I've had this long walk with her. I think that she was in my life for a reason. And she's been telling me things over all these many years. Um, and so she has been a great teacher to me as a woman, as a human being. So that's what I want to say about the but but as far as the Romani culture is concerned it's a it's a bound culture and and Carmen goes outside of that boundedness which is compressed and economically dislocated and excluded and you know the only you only go there if you live there the only people who come in are authority and that's to, to try to their presence is confrontational there or to try to control, but it's, we're talking about a sort of squashed, contained neighborhood. And so that's where I came, I started from first with just really looking at who I thought she was. And I don't think that she is the decorated and, and that's totally fine and a way to tell the story, but I don't see her as the sort of decorated, stereotypical uh, portrayal that we often see. I see her as completely organic, totally natural. Like, I don't think she shaves under her arms or shaves her legs, you know what I mean? I don't think she's <laughs> worried about putting on makeup or anything like that. I think she's naturally who she is. She's a natural beauty and a natural sort of electric uh, personality. And people wanna be with her and be in her presence and around her because she is brave and because she contains something that they wanna have. You know, she's admired and, and she's fun. She's also fun. She's like, you want her at your party, right? She's fun to hang out with because when she's there, she has the ability to transform everything and turn it into something. So she's magical in that way. In that way, she is a witch and she does, but she, she does believe very much. She's a fatalist. She does very much believe in the things that she believes in. For her, that's true. It's not some sort of like, it's not demeaning like, uh, uh, what do you call it, St uh, superstition or anything like that. She believes what she believes. And that is as valid as anybody else's belief in whatever they choose to believe in. So um, I really like her. I mean, I really like her. I, I love how incredibly uncompromising she is and I wish I were like her and I think this is one of the things that she's been teaching me to just be who you are and that that's great and that that's enough and that that's beautiful and and what is beautiful is that there is nobody else like you right and so stop trying to be you know someone else or who you think people want you to be or um what do you call it switch what was it called uh you tone sort of switching, tone switching when you try to conform yourself to whatever your circumstance happens to be. She's just, if you like it, you like it. it, it what you think about her is none of her business. She could care less. <laughs> and I love that about her, right? So I, and I admire that about her. And I think that was one of the things that she was there in my life to teach me. But I, she's, I, she's gritty 
and she's raw and she has power. And I think she can use her sexuality as a weapon when it advances her, when she, when she, as it enables her to get what it is that she wants to do. She's a slickster, she's crafty, right? She knows how to find her, she's resourceful. She knows how to find her way around. I mean, she's part of this traveling culture. So she's super smart. She spoke many languages, right? She knew how to assimilate into whatever culture she was dropped in. And she would always still, people would still know her name, whether she was in Egypt, whether she was in India, whether she was in Germany, whether she was in Italy, whether she was in America, no matter where she was, you would still find out about her because she was an incredible force to be reckoned with. And that's what I love about this gal. She's just amazing. And she has the ability to galvanize everybody that's around her and take any moment and turn it into the most exciting festive thing because she's living out, it's just like, it's like an animal, right? Like I take my dog out and my dog is out running and that is just pure happiness. It's nothing else but happiness. And how many of us can totally surrender ourselves to that entirely? Yeah, but we're thinking about this and oh, at two o'clock I gotta do this and I got these bills to pay and I gotta return this call and I've got all this stuff that I've gotta do. We don't give ourselves like we see in children. Like when they were laughing. I remember one time I was on a, an airplane and there was a lot of turbulence and it was scary. It was like one of those moments where you see your life flash in front of you and I just think, oh my God, is that, is this it? And you could feel the energy on the plane. Like everybody was scared. But then these two kids started laughing and I swear they saved our lives. They saved our lives because they were laughing. They were, ooh, you know, every time we hit something and then people started laughing and you could feel it was, it was palpable. You could, you could cut that tension on the airplane with a knife, but those kids saved us. They were little angels that day and they helped us get everybody get through that flight. Right. And so when you see that kind of abandon, like how often in our lives really are we able to live in that kind of truth with that kind of abandon hardly ever except she does she does if she loves you she loves you for that moment that she loves you and it's real then it might not be real next day she may have moved on from that if she hates you she hates you in that moment you better look out is what she says right and she's like that and that's what makes her thrilling and so exciting because she is 100% alive, right? Whatever you think about her, your issues, not hers. I want to be like that. Sorry, I do. It's like you're describing a superhero or something. Right. <laughs> yeah. Like, I don't know who yeah. wouldn't love Carmen after that. <laughs> so I had the wonderful pleasure of being in the rehearsal room for a couple of days about a week and a half ago. And I was really taken by the deft hand that you had with the cast and the approach you took. Um, I was watching very closely when you would speak with Maya or Wanwe, and I could hear the kinds of things you were saying that were really about character development and also building the relationships between the characters. And, you know, it was really wonderful to see because you did it in such a 
thoughtful, knowledgeable, warm way where I could also feel the affection you had for the piece. And I think that that lends a lot of support to something I know Rocky and Paige also feel strongly about, which is that our industry needs to see more Black women directing opera. Could you share how a move in that direction with more Black women, more women of color directing could be beneficial for the whole art form? It's a whole other perspective. It's a whole other perspective entirely. You know, one of the things that we say at my foundation at the Denise Grace Foundation is that we wanna provide a space for, for people to be in the room at the table, mm. right? Um, I would say this, that I, I believe that most people in the world are good, honest and decent people. But then we've got the other few, mm. right? The rascals. Mm -hmm. And people don't know what they don't know. Like you don't know what you don't know, right? I mean, I you know I was thirteen years old and I said I wanted to be an opera singer. I had no idea what that meant. I didn't know what that meant. And one day I want to get married. I had no idea what that meant. You got to be in it to know it, right? It, it, you you can't read about it. You have to experience it. And until there are other perspectives in the room, you don't realize that you've got a blind spot and several of them. And you don't realize that this world is made up of all of us. Everybody's voice is important. There is no one voice more important than somebody else's. God created every single person to be individual, to bring something to this human experience that we're all having here. And particularly now in this era where we're in this sort of consciousness where people are really looking at belonging and it's so, so, so interesting how the pandemic stilled us all. Okay, pause globally. Okay, everybody, we're gonna take a chill pill like everybody. We're gonna be quiet right now. And we're gonna see what we see. And people could see unfolding pandemics on many different levels, right? Now we've been saying some of it the whole time but the great fortune is that now people have cameras mm -hmm. and people can see for themselves, like we're not making this up. Mm -hmm. We've been saying this the whole time, this thing is happening, right? But people could see it for themselves. And um, I'm gonna say something may give me a little bit in hot water because I don't know if you're red or blue, but I remember after the um, last election, some of my friends said like, this is not the country that I thought it was. And I was like, it's the country I thought it was, but, um, you know, but some people were shocked and I, and I understand that you don't know what you don't know, but until you come out of your comfort zone, until you stretch out across the aisle, until you meet somebody else who's not like you, all you've got are these stereotypes. Yeah. That's all you've got. Right. And so I'm saying all of that to answer your question. Like, why is it important? Because the world is made up of all of us and everybody has a unique and important story to tell and a very different perspective. And you can't have, a, and we certainly, we also think of the, the theater in particular as being a place that transcends all of that stuff. When you listen to something beautiful, I think that the judgmental mind stops. You see a beautiful baby, you say, oh my goodness, look at that child. Look at that gorgeous baby, no matter 
what what they are or if we always oh, hear something funny we all laugh we don't know where the origins of that who, who, who made that joke or who you know when we hear something beautiful i think our judgmental mind stops and we immediately go into our hearts and that's another thing that the pandemic really showed us what was essential right because we what were we doing we were reading books we're listening to music, we're watching movies. We leaned on the arts as an anchor to keep us upright and to make us human in a time where of such incredible uncertainty that nobody had any information on how we were gonna get out of this thing or how it was gonna work, especially when it first hit and people were dying like crazy and we were all panicked and didn't know what this crazy, contagion was that was in our midst and we were all at home reconnected with things that are important with our families right with our friends with art with all that and it's not until you it's it's really not until you have the opportunity to really look outside of yourself that you can really appreciate that our experiences here are greater than just our life experiences there's something going on here that is greater than who we are as individual human beings. And that's that, you mentioned Maya Angelou to quote, we are more alike than unalike. Mm -hmm. the, the thing that binds us together are our humanity, our love, our hearts, the same, all of the things that we all share in the whole wide world, right? But people have all kinds of different experiences, like, you know, e e you can go to the you can go to the store one way I can go another way and on that route something happens to you that does not happen to me and I have a very different experience and we bring that because it reminds us why is it important because it reminds us that we're more alike than unalike it reminds us that you might be Asian you might be I don't know what you might be French you might be black you might be white the thing that connects us all together are is our humanity right? There are so much that we share across the board. I don't care who you are. Everybody wants their children to have a good life. We all want to have good lives, right? We want that for our parents. We want them to be healthy. We want them to be happy. We want that for ourselves. We want that for the people that we love. We all want that. Everybody wants the same thing, right? But when you see that people do life and have very, very different life experiences, what it does is I think it makes you more compassionate. I think it makes you a more tolerant and compassionate individual. And then you don't judge and say like, oh, all Asians are like this. All black people are like this. All white people are like that. Because you have experiences that tells you differently. But until you have those experiences, all you have is the conditioning that's out there. And it's out there, it's out there. Uh, my, my girlfriend was telling me the other day that her little daughter who's three years old said, you know, um, she was talking about a little girl who had short hair and say, well, all women are supposed to have, all girls are supposed to have long hair. Now at three, she got that message from somewhere. It came through loud and clear. It's a lie, but that's what she received. And they receive everything else too, right? And so that's why when they, you know, the cop asked that white policeman who killed the black boy, why did you do it? And he said, I don't know. I totally believe him. 
because somewhere he got the message in his bed in the bedrock of his foundation that black men are evil and dangerous and to be feared and all this stuff. That's why it's so gorgeous to see, you know, Lee sitting there with a beautiful, you know, uh, talking about this story with this beautiful, you know, Carmen picture, and to see, you know, Rocky there talking about opera and telling this story and bringing this story to the masses because we don't see you doing that. We don't see your faces doing that. We're happy to see your faces in all the films that'll show every uh, scene in jail mm -hmm. or hanging out on the corner or all of this stuff that we have been just inundated with our whole life, this incredible lie that everybody drank the Kool-Aid from, everybody, including us. Yeah. That's the most dangerous part is that we believe we're not supposed to like, rise to a certain and but I think that that has changed and I think that that is changing look at these four beautiful beautiful brown faces I could it breaks my heart wide open I could cry talking about opera which some people consider to be a white European art form right like what are you doing there we can accept that you could sing hip-hop right or gospel music we can we can accept that we can't accept this, right? So the reason it's important is because we break down and we break down these lies and the stereotypes and we open up people's consciousness and awarenesses that this stuff that we've been telling is a lie and it's hurt us all. It's hurt black people, it's hurt white people, it's hurt Asian people, it's hurt all of us. Right. And so now we had that period of incredible stillness where we started looking at saying, is this the kind of world that we want to have? Is this the world that we want to live in? And now we're piecing it back together. And we're saying everybody belongs to this earth. I don't care who you are, straight, gay, trans, whatever, whatever. Everybody's life is valuable and glorious. Keep your own opinions to yourself. But that's what's so great also about the American experiment. I had an experience some years ago where I was singing Carmen in, um, I, I could say that nearly about everything because I sang Carmen so, so much everywhere. But anyway, <laughs> I was singing Carmen in Chicago and I just had my daughter and I wanted to lose weight. And so I started boxing. And so uh, I, I wanted to box. And so I went to this boxing studio to see if I could take boxing lessons. And the guy, and, and, and first of all, I just want to say, I, I, I by no means mean any offense to anybody. I try, uh, and oftentimes I fail, but I try to love as much as I'm capable of. Um, there was a Muslim guy there who owned the, the boxing studio. And he said, well, I just lost my boxing instructor, but I would really like to have the business so I can teach you myself as long as you don't tell anybody. I was like, well, who am I going to tell? Who am I going to tell? But so he started teaching me boxing. And so we were together every morning, six o'clock in the morning, like sparring and talking about life. And so I said to him, I said, can you just tell me something like, why are you guys mad? Like, what's wrong? What's the problem? And he, he shared with me so many things. And one of the things he said, he said, you know, I, I don't want my kids growing up with this, to show you how long ago this was, with this MTV mentality 
um, you know, with these women walking around, you know, in these short skirts and, 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 and de depicted as these sexual objects, not wearing any clothes and they're all whores. And I said, well, I know what you're saying. I hear what you're saying, I do. But just because they're wearing a mini skirt or whatever doesn't make them a whore. And even if they were a whore, it's the right to be a whore. And what we're seeing in America is this, Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to be free. What, what's, what makes this country so great? And there's nothing, there's no other country like this. Mostly in France, you get French people, right? In France, in Germany, you have Germans, you know, for the most part. In America, we've got everybody here, everybody here. And what we're saying is be who you are. You might not like it, you might not agree with, you can serve whichever. God, you want to, whatever that is, you have the right to do that. What we're saying is you have the right. If the woman wants to wear a short skirt, that's her right to wear a short skirt. I hear what you're saying, that you don't want your little girls looking at that and, and to admire that and become like that. Dolly Parton, I heard Dolly Parton in an interview once saying that she was on the front porch of her house in the South and there was this lady walking down the street um, with a red dress on, cut all the way down to paradise with uh, everything hanging out. And her mother said, look at that whore. And she, and Dolly Parton said, she said, that is exactly what I want to be when I grow up. <laughs> right? right? So, so what I was saying to him, I said, people have the right to be whoever they want to be. You can be who you want to be and serve whichever God is meaningful to you. And I can serve whichever God and do whatever I want to do. And that's what we're doing here. And, you know, we were boxing. So I said to him, I said, you know, it's a shame. You got, you should come to the opera. I mean, he'd never been to the opera before. And that wasn't something that he was used to doing. I said, you got to come. So, so he decided to come and he brought one of his um, brothers from the, and he stayed to meet me afterwards. And he said, oh my God. He said, in that Faust, that fight scene when you did that duck. I said, I taught her that. I taught her that. Said, I knew exactly. Said, we had just worked on that one uppercut that you threw the girl in the fight scene. And I could tell, I could tell, I could tell that he loved me. And I loved him too. And I knew that he would never say it. He could, we could never make such a profession, but he had such, he had affection for me. I had affection for him too. Even though the, the parameters or the constraints or the laws of his religion would not allow him to uh, profess such a thing or to um, have our interactions go noticed or anything like that. The truth is that we found some commonality, but that was only because we had the opportunity to meet each other and to be together. I would, I would be the poorer without having had that experience. At the end of my time working with him, he gave me a Quran and he wrapped it up in this cloth um, that he kissed. And I, I, I could just cry thinking about it now. And he told me that this book was holy and sacred and that that should be placed on the highest shelf in your house. So he said, if you have it on a bookshelf, it should go on the highest shelf, like nothing else should go above it because there's nothing that is above it. And I respect it and I understood it. And I handled that with such, with the way that he offered it to me 
with total respect, with total reverence. I kissed it and I thanked him for that. It is today on the highest shelf in my house. And every time I see it, sometimes I look through it, sometimes I read a little bit, but that incredible gift that he gave me remains with me today. And that was 18 years ago. But it's not until you have the opportunity to meet and talk with other people, to hear their perspectives, then we begin to change this world and change, change our minds and change our hearts. And it's not until you hear other people's perspectives that we can become whole as a society. And that is the very long answer to answer your question of why it is important to have Black women directors in opera. Thank you. Yes, that was that was a whole sermon. <laughs> Amen. Amen. I mean, but also what you said reminds me so much of. I mean, I, I think I was telling maybe Rocky and Lee earlier that I'm here today because people in my life had the same view that you do that I should be exposed to to different people, to different cultures that. I have a place where wherever I go, there was a teacher who was like, you need to know that opera is not just white and European. Here's Denise Graves, here's Jesse Norman, here's Marian Anderson. And that is just so, so important. And it makes me think of what you're doing now, partly with nurturing a next generation of, of singers and that, you know, kind of being part of what you're doing with uh, with Carmen, and I especially think about that connection between you and and Zoe, who we had on who we had on the show as well. And what's that experience like to step into that now into a mentorship role? And what can more of us be doing also to support those young singers as well? So I feel first of all like my heart is going to burst like when I look at those beautiful young women, and also my student. My student, Simone Harkham, mm -hmm. yeah. um, plays one of the lead roles in the opera. So for me, every time I look at her, I, 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 I'm, I'm on the verge of tears. I just can't even believe that little girl <laughs> who came into my studio, who is, we started giving voice lessons for, like now we're actually working together. I can't even believe it. Okay. So first of all, what I'm proud to report, I was very curious as to how I might feel directing this like if I would secretly feel like oh god I wish I were doing it or they shouldn't do it like this I, I did like this so I was very curious to watch my own reactions and what I think about you know working on it from this side of the proscenium march and I am so delighted to report there there isn't one iota of any kind of envy or jealousy or anything. Uh, my, my, I feel like I, I'm so happy. First of all, they feel like my children and I'm so happy 100% like the little kids. I'm so happy for them. And I'm so happy for their success that I would say that that would, that, was probably one of the biggest surprises in my life um, when I started teaching because it just takes so long to build this career. It just, it takes so long and it takes everything that you've got in you and it takes a lot of tenacity and just sticking with it and constant teaching and constant learning and constant coaching and constant everything. It's fatiguing. 
And then when you finally get there, you're worn out. You're just so tired. You're like, you want to take a nap. You're like, woo, you know? <laughs> so I've always been so myopic and focused on my own career that when I was asked to teach, I didn't think I could possibly, I don't know, care more about somebody else's career over mine. But that's the case. I fell in love immediately with each one of my students. When they succeed, it feels like we all succeed. It feels like I, I, I'm like, that's my student. My student did that. Like I taught her how to do that. Um, and whenever they have so-called failures, because I don't believe that there are any failures, but anyway, when there are disappointments, I'm as disappointed and cry with them and the whole thing and get angry, you know, for somebody not seeing their brilliance or their beauty. I get all mad. So I feel that way with this group of individuals that are putting this together. First of all, they're coming to it wanting to offer their best. And I know that, and I can see that. I can see them working. I can see how they grow from rehearsal to rehearsal. I can see how they refine some things. And, um, and I can see, this is the part that makes me wanna cry. I can see them look at me from their eyes, looking for my approval, looking for what I think about them. That's the part that kills me. You know, I see them. So I love them, right? I love them and I'm so, so happy for them. So about that, this all has been a gift to me. Like this is, I, I believe in God because I know God is real because I know it, not because I read it, not because anybody told me because I have seen the face of God every day of my life. And I know it's not popular and I know it's not sexy to talk about, but I'm here because I, I know that this is God's work on my life. I know it. And it's God's blessing on me because I sit there and I have this beauty just cover me all day long. And I swear to God, I swear it's healing me. It's making me a better person. So I don't know what God is crafting me for, but this work is part of it and helping me along that journey. So I am so happy for them. I'm proud of them. I'm proud of what they're bringing to this. I'm proud that they're going to make me look good. Thank you very much. Child, yes. <laughs> yes, because they're going to bring it. They are going to bring it. And I know everybody's like, well, yeah, Denise, she's cool. We like her and everything. She's a singer, but like, is she really a director? You know? And so I, I think that, you know, everybody bringing the best that they have to this moment is, is going to show the kind of chops that I have. And I, and I've had a, a broad experience with this opera in particular. And I do have a point of view and something to say about it. Well, I am just sitting here and I'm listening to, to all of this. And I think about, you know, I'm the EDI director here at m and Opera. So my job really is to look at the systems and the procedures and the policies and, you know, doing what we can do to, you know, make sure that everything is in alignment with anti-racist values, that we're creating spaces of authentic belonging. And I think about you coming into to the space, you know, directing Carmen. I think about Simone, I think about Zoe, I think about all these incredible artists of color who are coming in to do their thing and just how, just the richness of it all, just the grandeur of it all, just how beautiful it is that we've been able to cultivate this space. And I'm just wondering, we have a lot of, of opera industry folks who listen to the show. What in your opinion 
um, since you have sung in houses all over the country, all over the world, um, can can organizations like like ours do to help support artists of color, especially Black artists who are coming? Yeah, up? well, I think first of all, the work you do has got to be fabulous. It's got to be great, and then the work speaks for itself, and there's nothing to say. There's nothing to say. People have to come to this production. They have to see those fabulous women up there killing it. And the work will speak. You don't have to say anything. All you have to do is be excellent. But being excellent takes time. It takes nurturing. It takes work. It takes not giving up. It takes staying in the room. It keeps working at it again and again and again and again. The work will speak for itself. So I think that when, you know, Minnesota Opera is really, really, really innovative in a lot of the things that you guys do here. I mean, I got my first opera. I, I got my first role here with Carmen. Back in 1991, you know, it was the first, it was my first real, you know, job engagement, singing the title role. And since that time, I've come back over the years for concerts and, and for different things that uh, I've done um, with Minnesota Opera, apart from the Opera House. And I hear about these new productions that are going on. I hear about Silent Night. I hear about The Shining. I hear, I hear when you guys do these new productions, people are still talking about it. And so... Minnesota Opera has really been a leader in that, in the way of championing new works and celebrating works by unknown composers or young composers or world premieres, that sort of thing. And really giving everybody an opportunity. And, um, and, and th that, that the idea of extending the invitation to me to come to direct Carmen is really, something incredible and uh, amazing. So I think that the thinking here is very innovative and people are really looking at how they can make their mark in the industry. And I think it's happening. I think it's 100% happening. So I think, but with respect to people of color, women of color, I think you gotta, you gotta first of all, yes, be, be, I'll tell you something. When they offered me this invitation, I thought about, Eric Sean Fogel, who's the associate um, uh, director and the choreographer, because I'd worked with him before. And I loved him and I loved his work. And I just think he's brilliant. And he is brilliant. And I put a bunch of names together and I called Francesca Zambello, who is, is the artistic director of Washington National Opera and also the general director and artistic director for Glimmer Glass Music Festival. And I didn't know at the time that this production would be a shared production between Minnesota Opera and Glimmerglass. I called Francesca as a friend and I said, you won't even believe what just happened. Minnesota Opera called me and they asked me to do this. What do you think I should do? She said, you should do it to me. Just like that, you should do it. And so she said, you know, to put, put, a, put together a team and I named a bunch of people and she said, Denise, those are all white men. She said, if you show up at that engagement with all white men, child, you're gonna have to leave this country. <laughs> and I said, well, isn't that interesting though? Cause that's all I've worked with. I'm, I'm talking about the people that I know. These are all the people that I know. Where are the black women? Where are they at? Okay, where are they? Mm -hmm. And in this process, I begin finding them and discovering them. And I'm happy to report that out of, maybe the six or seven people that I contacted, they were all working. They were all working. So that's good. 
I mean, that experience uh -huh. showed us so much. And I said, well, look, look at what's happening now. They're working and I know about them. And maybe for, you know, another in, uh, another engagement, we can do something together. I don't have all white men. Not that there's anything wrong with that because I love white men. But um, there's a mix of all kinds of people that are together on this creative team, right? And fortunately for us, Juana Botez, who is the costume designer, is from the uh, Romani culture. So she comes to us with direct experience about it. That's by no accident. I'm sorry, that's no accident that she happens to be that, that that's what I'm thinking that how we should tell the story. And she happens to be raised in the Roma culture. So she is the authority right there about what it is that we're doing and how we're doing it. So I think that what needs to happen is what you're doing right now, this podcast needs to get out there. People need to hear it. People need to come see the show. People need to be curious and make a step and make some effort to, to see what's going on around them. Make a conscious effort to do it. You know, if I'm ever in the grocery store or, I, you know, and I see like Vogue magazine or People magazine with a black person on the cover, cover, I always buy a lot of them. And my husband's like, Denise, we don't need 15 copies of People. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, but you, what you don't understand is that the bottom line is it's going to come down to money. And if, if they look at the numbers and say, oh, this issue with Queen Latifah sold more than it did of somebody else, that is what registers to them. And I've got to support it. And, um, and this, this makes the statement. So people have to support the work, right? People, but people have got to hear about it. And, and that's why it's so important about what you're doing because you're gonna air this and then people hear about it, they learn about it and something opens up and says, so, gee, I never knew that or I never thought about that in that way before and it creates a, a curiosity or in some people, an incredible discovery into something that they'd never thought about or imagined before. And then we, we, it allows us to be braver and to take a step forward into an area that perhaps we'd never been in before, right? Um, and so everybody has their responsibility and everybody can make a difference and do their part. Even if it's just like saying hello to someone walking down the street who doesn't say hello to you back, but you did it and you put it out there, right? And all of that stuff is important because we're all scared, man. Everybody's scared. We're all wounded. Everybody's hurt. We've got stories. Everybody's got like incredible stories that they can tell you, right? to break your heart, everybody. You don't, part of the price of being here on the fabulous planet earth is that you gotta go through stuff. And I don't care who you are, you're gonna walk through some turbulent waters, everybody. Mm -hmm. You don't get out of here alive, right? <laughs> you gotta go through it. <laughs> so we all share that too. And, and it takes brave people. It takes Ryan Taylor to say, Let's offer this, this to Denise Graves. Every time I look at him, I just, uh, you know, I want to like smother him in kisses because it's been the experience. It's been one of the greatest privileges and joys of my life. So um, just amazing. I would just say that people just have got to get out there. Pieces like this have got to get out there, got to get air. We need to see your faces. You know, we need to see Lee, we need to see Rocky. Uh, of course you paid, but we certainly need to see the men out there doing things that we don't see them doing. 
normally, traditionally uh, see them doing, because that will begin to change. And then we won't be saying, what is it as an African-American woman to do this? We'll just say, what's your experience been like, Denise? And I say, it was fabulous. I loved every minute, every minute of it. It was great. But we have to make that distinction right now because we live in a place where it has not been fair. It just hasn't. It's been disproportionately leaning one way. You know, I mean, come on. So we all know that. And I think people, our, our awarenesses are starting there. There's some cracks that are starting, there's some light that's starting to come in and people are starting to look at things differently and see that there are all kinds of different offerings. There are all kinds of different, that everybody and each life is valuable and has something to offer that we can learn from. Amazing. Uh, well, I'm looking at the clock <laughs> and it looks like, unfortunately, our time is up for today. I wish I could, I could, I could sit here and ask questions all day. <laughs> truly. <laughs> oh, truly, seriously. Thank you so much, Ms. Graves, for being with us on our show today. This, I know I keep saying this, but it truly is just an honor. We were saying the other day that yeah. all three of us probably wouldn't be here if it weren't for you. Hundred percent. Watching you, isn't that something? You know, it's... isn't that something? And you know, I grew up in Washington D.C. We all know about the D.C. and Southeast. This little teeny scared girl, and look at what God has done. Mm -hmm. Isn't it wonderful? It's incredible. And 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 all of our lives are examples and can be used all the time, um, and they are. They are. You know. So. What a privilege to be alive. What a privilege to be healthy. What a privilege to be here. What a privilege to be with you, fabulous three. Oh, amen. And Thank what you. a privilege to be with Likewise. you. Thank you so much. <laughs> so everybody, go to mnopera.org. Get your tickets. Carmen opens this Saturday. It's going to be an amazing show. Cannot wait to see it. It's going to be so beautiful. And... Thank you so much for being here. This was such an honor, such an honor. <laughs> we will be right back. Thanks so much. And we are back. Oh my gosh, y'all. <laughs> Can you believe? <laughs> I can't. <laughs> amazing <laughs> incredible well we always do pure black joy but i think we can all probably agree that this week's pure black joy is we just had denise graves on our show <laughs> <laughs> like what the f <laughs> what is our lives like <laughs> that's incredible so really just want to thank um, Ms. Graves for taking the time out of her busy schedule Absolutely. in order to be with us. Um, Carmen opens uh, this Saturday. Yes, yes. 
Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, at the Ordway Center for the Performing Arts in St. Paul. And please, please, please get your tickets. They will make a fantastic uh, Mother's Day gift. Aww. Yeah. You know, or if you're me and your father's birthday falls on Mother's Day this year. <laughs> <laughs> That's always fun. <laughs> but a great birthday <laughs> gift <laughs> as well. Or, you know, just a gift for yourself. Um, come on down. Um, I can't, I'm super excited because I think I'm going to this the dress rehearsal on Thursday. Are you going, Lee? Uh, yes, sir. I will be there with bells on. Yeah, so I can't wait. And Paige, I'm sure you'll get to see the show at some point. <laughs> at some point yes. at some point i will i'm i'm just deciding which one i want to try to go see uh our very own um <laughs> and i but i the dates the dates we'll see we'll see but i will see yeah. it yes. at some point yes like yes. absolutely yes <laughs> Whatever have we to have to the very last performance. <laughs> Whatever we have to do, we will get you in that room. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that's going to do it for this week. Um, everyone go see Carmen. Uh, give us a five star rating, please, on Apple or Spotify or wherever you are listening to this right now. Five Cinco. <laughs> I'm not playing. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, subscribe and share us with your friends. And please write into us with any questions, comments, concerns, whatever, um, at the score at MN. Why can I not? (laughs) Why can't I say Minnesota Opera today? (laughs) (laughs) Email us at the score at mnopera.org t-h-e-s-c-o-r-e at m-n-o-p-e-r-a dot o-r-g I can't talk but I can spell (laughs) g-d it (laughs) all right so before we go any words of wisdom Y'all. <laughs> <laughs> I should be better at this. Go see Carmen. There you go. That's it. Go see Carmen. Get your life. Go see Carmen. <laughs> All right. And we will see you in two weeks. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye.